Section 10 of The Red Lamp by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. July 30th. I have today borrowed some of Mrs. Livingston's books on psychic research, and intend to go into them thoroughly. If there is any proof in a mass of evidence, it is certainly here. On the other hand, one must remember that the hope of survival is the strongest desire of the human heart. How many, if they felt that this life was all, would care to go on with it? Analyzing my last night's experience, however, I can find nothing in my mind before I went to sleep to account for it. I ate a late dinner, and spent the evening after Jane retired with this journal. The night was quiet, and my last waking thought was concerning the woodcutter across the road, who seems so singularly inactive except when someone leaves the lodge, or appears at one of its windows. One thing I have traced, however. It is distinctly possible that the herbal aromatic odor I noticed at the end of the experience was due to the leaves he collected yesterday, and which I find have smoldered throughout the night. It was after midnight when, just as I was dozing off, Jane came to my door and asked me if I would mind sleeping in her room. I can fix you a bed on the couch, she said, avoiding my eyes. I'm nervous tonight for some reason. I went at once, trailing my bedding with me, and while she prepared the couch I observed her. She was very white, and I saw that her hands were shaking, but she refused my offer of some brandy with her usual evasive answer. I'm all right, she said. I just don't like being alone. She fell asleep almost at once, like one exhausted, but the change of beds had fully roused me, and I lay for some time staring into the darkness. I do not know when it was that I began to have the feeling that we were not alone in the room, but I imagine fully half an hour had passed. I saw nothing, but I had the sensation of being stealthily watched, and with it something of horror rather than of fear. I was rigid with it. Then something seemed to tug at my coverings, and the next moment they had slid to the floor. Almost immediately after that there came a rush of air through the room, a curtain billowed over my face, and the door into the hall swung open. Then all was silent, save for a low whine from Jock outside in the hall. How much of this today to allot to my nerves I do not know. Undoubtedly Jane's nervousness had affected me. Equally undoubtedly my bedclothing has a tendency to slip from a couch. I have quietly experimented today. A gale of wind would blow out a curtain and open an unlatched door. On the other hand, I am as certain today as I have been certain of anything recently, that I had bolted the door when I entered the room, but it was not bolted in the morning. If I have indeed actually had a psychic experience, it seems singularly purposeless. Up to this time I have imagined, correctly or not, that these inexplicable occurrences have had a concealed but definite objective, if such a phrase may be used, but in this case there is apparently nothing. Otherwise the night was quiet, without new developments. Greeno continues his work, handicapped by the usual difficulty besetting a detective in the country that his every move is known and watched. Jane herself wakened this morning after a quiet sleep, and although she is languid, the present intense heat may easily account for that. We have had, however, a development of our own, and this from Edith. It appears that this morning, seeing Dr. Hayward pass on his round of morning calls, she went to his office, and, on his housekeeper reporting him out, asked permission to go into his office and there leave him a note. A note, I inquired? What sort of a note? Any sort of note, said Edith. As it happens, I asked him to tea tomorrow. It was all I could think of. But what she really did was to type a few lines on his typewriter, tear the paper out, and put it in the small vanity case which is as much a part of her as the nose she powders from it. As a net result of which audacious performance, Halliday now informs me that the safer words were not written on the doctor's machine. A careful comparison under a magnifying glass shows this so that even I can recognize it. So there we are again. If we are to believe that the chalk which marked my car was brought in that paper, we must grant that the doctor did not mark the car. Or in other words, that our contra-offensive is not to be launched as yet and that our only course is to continue rather ignominiously in our trenches. July 31st. 
Halliday has found the boat. At least he has found a boat which answers Jane's description. Today he took me to see it. It lies in the small creek which extends through the marsh half a mile north of the boathouse, and just beyond Robinson's Point. Note. This creek is really a narrow estuary from the bay, almost entirely overgrown, and its entrance hidden by reeds, and is only a few hundred feet in length. At its upper end, where the boat lay, the swamp ends and the woodland commences. Although on another estate, the woodland is a continuation of our own. The boat, evidently an old and abandoned one, gives some evidence of recent use. That is, although it contains some water, there is very little, whereas, as Halliday says, after the recent rains it might well be full. The oar locks are wrapped with dingy white cotton cloth, and to prevent their being stolen or the boat taken away, the oars had been skillfully hidden in the marsh. Halliday located them, but left them as they were, but with his penknife he cut away a small bit of the muffling on the oar lock for later possible identification. During the search for the Morrison girl, undoubtedly this boat was discovered and examined. There are numerous footprints on the bank which effectually prevent any clue being discovered among them. But the discovery of an entirely seaworthy boat in so remote a location, with only the lighthouse in sight, and that at a considerable distance, is in itself suspicious. It was in this boat, Halliday believes, that the murderer fled onto the bay from our slip the night Carraway discovered him, and from it too that he later climbed into Carraway's launch and attacked him. Small wonder that the boy's face set hard as he examined it. Yet, for one must find some humor nowadays or go mad, there was something humorous in the careful indirection by which we reached it. We made rather ostentatious preparations to go fishing, Halliday working with hooks and sinkers, and I hopelessly entangled in coils of line. Later we rowed across the bay and anchored by the whistle buoy, where we fished assiduously for some time. Our approach to the mouth of the creek was therefore of a most desultory sort, but once around Robinson's Point we abandoned caution and rowed rapidly. The mouth of the creek was well closed with water weeds, but we pulled the boat through them, and over a shoal, into the deeper water beyond. Then, with a look around, we settled to the oars again. Had Greeno been able to see us from start to finish, he would have had some basis for his suspicions of me. Whether Halliday's later discovery has any significance or not, we are not certain. Believing that, on the night of the girl's murder, she was brought in the truck to the waterfront, and coupling this with the finding of the boat, he left me sheltered from observation in the woodland, and started through it toward the main road. In a half hour or so he came back again, and reported that he had found the track of wheels driven through the woods, and that in one place a broad wire fence had been taken down and boards placed over it, to permit the passage of a car across it. This is, I imagine, fair presumptive evidence, although it brings us no nearer the identity of the criminal than we were before. And it has this disadvantage, that the villagers have always exerted a right of preemption over the fallen timber in the woods hereabout, as I know to my cost, and that the trail would be nothing more nor less than that of some thrifty individual seeking fuel for his cooking stove. One thing, however, may be valuable. Edith, who knows a number of unsuspected housewifely things, insists that the strips which wrap the oarlocks are of a fine grade of material. Look for somebody, she says. He uses linen sheets on his bed and doesn't care that they cost $25 a pair nowadays. From which I gather, among other things, that our little Edith has been pricing the equipment of a home. Tonight that old sea chest which in the boathouse holds on its top the law books which were to occupy Halliday's leisure this summer, and which so far seem to be used chiefly to hold open his doors on windy days, the old sea chest contains to date the four clues which are our sole ammunition in the putative expedition against Greeno. They are a. Half of a broken lens from a pair of eyeglasses. b. A scrap of paper containing a cryptic bit of typing in large and small letters. c. The small cap of an ether can. d. A fragment of white cloth. Had it not been for Halliday's unwittingly placing a weapon in the enemy's hands, we should also have had e. A very sharp knife, with a plain wooden handle, and a blade approximately six inches long. August 1st. I am now convinced that any attempt to solve these crimes by the discovery of an underlying motive is a mistake. 
nor will Grino's study of psychology help him here, unless he be expert in its psychopathic developments. One cannot piece together into a rational whole the fragmentary impulses of a lunatic. An incendiary fire was started beneath the boathouse last night, or rather toward morning. An assortment of what was apparently oil-soaked waste was placed in one of the pails from the sloop, and a candle lighted and placed in it. Over this was laid such lumber as was left from the repair of the pier. Had Halliday been asleep, the entire building might have burned. As it happened, he had been in the woods near where we found the boat, on a chance that its proprietor might pay it a visit. He discovered the fire from some distance, and by hard running, reached it in time to extinguish it. He notified Greeno early this morning, but that gentleman was extremely non-committal. He stood with his hands in his pockets, kicking over the ashes of the fire. "'What's the big idea, Mr. Halliday?' he inquired. "'I don't get that,' said Halliday belligerently. "'Don't you?' said Greeno, and after kicking the ashes once more, took an unruffled departure. The best we can make of that is that the detective believes the whole thing a clumsy but concerted plan, on Halliday's part and mine, that we have endeavored to show that, although his watchers would be able to testify that I had not left the house last night, the unknown is still at work. Nor can I entirely blame him for that. Whoever built the fire knew that Halliday was out at the time, but Halliday could not so state without betraying his knowledge of the boat, a matter he wishes to keep to himself as long as possible. Small wonder that the detective, estimating from his charred remains the amount of lumber heaped over the flame, was skeptical. You are a good sleeper, Mr. Halliday, he observed. A new month begins today, and like Pepe's, it behooves me to take stock of myself. In spite of my best endeavors, some of my anxiety has crept into this record during the last month, and not always anxiety for myself. Alone I could take off my coat and fight this thing out, but I am handicapped by Edith and Jane. Edith will not go and leave Halliday. Jane will not consider abandoning me here, although she has no idea of the true situation. If you want to go back to town, she says, I'll go too, of course. But if you are talking about staying here alone for some silly reason, I won't even consider it. You wouldn't have a clean shirt after the first week. But even if I felt that no action would be precipitated by the police, in case of such a move, I have a responsibility I cannot evade. The responsibility to my tenant. I have, by a reduced rent and an alluring advertisement, brought here an elderly paralytic and his young secretary, and, evade the issue as I may, the fact remains that the last two acts of violence have been on my property. From the beginning, indeed, the most casual survey of the situation shows me that Twin Hollows has been a sort of focal point. It was on this property that Niley saw the sheep killer hunt sanctuary. Not on it, but adjacent to it, is still hidden the boat, and it was from my own float that he first escaped from Carraway and later killed him. It was even very possibly his flashlight that Halliday saw the night of his arrival when, finding the boathouse occupied, he worked his way through the salt marsh toward the sea. More recently, the radius of his activity has been narrowed to the property itself. The secretary sees him outside a window, he enters the house and attacks him from within, and a few days later, possibly having overseen Halliday's discovery of his boat, he attempts to drive him away by setting fire to the boathouse. I am tempted to ask Mr. Bethel to cancel his lease, to return him his money and tire, and relieve me of responsibility. What would he say, I wonder? August 2nd. I write and read, and now and then make a fugitive excursion into Jane's room, from behind her curtains, to watch my watcher at work. In spite of himself, he has achieved something, and will doubtless go back to the city somewhat the better for an unexpectedly athletic summer. I have been reading Mrs. Livingston's books, and a pretty lot of nonsense I find them. If there is anything in this question of survival, surely we cannot expect to find it in physical phenomena. Why not better accept that the nervous force which actuates the body may, in certain individuals, extend beyond the periphery of that body? Nevertheless, it is as well that I brought away from the other house the book I found there on the desk, on Eugenia Riggs and the Oakville Phenomena. It is no reading from Mr. Bethel under the circumstances. One finds, for instance, that the small paneled room which we call the den was used for her seances. That paneling in itself sounds suspicious. But stop! 
It was not panelled at that time. I recall when poor old Horace found that oak panelling and gleefully installed it in what had been the old kitchen of the original farmhouse. An investigation, made just now, has supplemented my memory. The photograph, note, plate one, Eugenia Riggs and the Oakville Phenomena, shows a plastered wall and one or two crude watercolours on it, possibly the spirit paintings of the text. It also shows that the cabinet, so-called, was not a cabinet at all, but a dark curtain on a heavy pole, which extends across a blank corner. In the picture, these curtains are thrown back, showing a small stand on which are the stage properties of George, a bell, a pen of something, a glass, and a small bunch of flowers. On the floor, ready for his ghostly hand, is a guitar. The wall is certainly plastered. An inset shows the pan, set on its edge to allow photography, and with the title, Imprint of Hand in Putty, December 2nd, 1902, notice the lack of usual whorls and ridges. But in spite of this rather militant caption, I find I am unimpressed. Rather, I am wondering whether somewhere in the background there was not a Mr. Riggs, with a short broad thumb and a bent little finger, who was not ignorant of the lack of the usual whorls and ridges in a pair of rubber gloves. But it is no book for Mr. Bethel. Mrs. Riggs meets Markowitz on his own ground and fairly beats him. True, he produces a broad face and an arm which comes through the soiled stuff of his curtain. But she does that and more. She shows, under very dim red light, and anyone who has tried to see by it knows how negligible that is, hands which may be touched and held. The hand, says one witness, came out from the cabinet and advanced toward me. I could see no body, but the billowing of the curtain indicated some unearthly presence behind it. I asked permission to touch it, and the medium agreed, provided I did it without force. I then took the hand and held it for a perceptible moment, when it seemed to dissolve away and slip from my grasp. One may be sure it dissolved away, and that as speedily as possible. But, considering that plastered wall, the entire evidence in the book, gathered together, forms a surprising whole. One must take off one's hat to the Riggs family, provided there were two of them, or to whomsoever assisted the lady, especially since the windows were shuttered and bolted and small strings of bells, which would ring at the slightest touch, were hung across them. One does not wonder, since Annie Cochran probably had access to the book, that she found her tea kettle moved about and had her bedclothing shamelessly taken from her. August 3rd. Halliday, who was an early riser, burst in on us this morning at the breakfast table, fairly bristling with excitement. Good morning, everybody, he sang out. And how about a picnic today? Ginger ale and fried chicken, I to provide the ginger ale. Sit down, man, and pull yourself together, Edith said, eyeing him. William, fetch the aromatic spirits of ammonia. He will be all right presently. What do I receive for a piece of very cheering news? He demanded. Who's to judge whether it's cheering or not? Well, I'll leave it to all of you, he said. Greeno's gone. Benchley came over yesterday and threw him off the case. At least that's what they say at the post office. Thirteen days he's been fooling around, and he couldn't get over the hump. If only he'd stayed a little longer, Edith said regretfully, and somebody had killed him. It's rotten bad luck, that's all. The conversation had little or no meaning for Jane. She was, I could see, puzzled by our excitement and unable to understand our relief. Surely they have left somebody, she said. We ought not to be left without protection. Who knows when something will break out again, and then where are we? Where indeed, said Halliday, and he and Edith two-stepped into the living room, where Edith sat down at the organ and played execrably a few bars of Shall We Gather at the River. Latest song hit, she called. Words and music here, twenty-five cents. I think you are all a trifle mad, Jane said, and went out to do her morning ordering. The move was a totally unexpected one. Yesterday, as Halliday said, the sheriff came over to the hotel and was closeted for an hour or two with Greeno. A billboard reports that, on carrying some cracked ice to the room, he found Greeno sitting morosely by a table, and Benchley at the window staring out. Half an hour later the sheriff left, passing out of the hotel without so much as a nod to anyone, and within the hour Greeno was paying his bill in the lobby and ordering a car to take him to the train. 
Our own relief was enormous, but there was much grumbling among the summer folk as well as the natives. Star is the usual variety of a small-town constable, and it seems extraordinary that the case should be left in his care. It is, of course, possible that another man is to be sent in Greeno's place, but if so, we had no intimation of it. Later. Incredible the rapidity with which news circulates here. The immediate result of Greeno's departure has been rather to revive the interest in the situation than otherwise. I dare say as long as the police were on the case, the people more or less lay back and depended on them. Now they are thrown once more onto their own resources, and a variety of opinions and even of clues are being exchanged at that central clearinghouse, the post office. Thus, this morning the cows of a man named Vaughn were found, huddled in a corner of the field, giving every evidence of having been run to death during the night, to the common-sense suggestion of a dog being the culprit pitying glances. A stranger three days ago tried to buy a large knife in the hardware store, later shown to be the Livingston's new butler seeking a carving knife. The second keeper at the lighthouse has resigned, declaring the tower is haunted, this is true so far as the resignation goes. He has, it appears, asked to be transferred, but Ward says there has been no repetition of the strange affair the night of the storm. A car driven recklessly and without lights has been seen twice near the Hilburn Road, both times after midnight. There seems a certain authenticity in this. The car, however, shows its lights until fairly close to another car, then it shuts them off entirely. There may be, of course, some defect in the dimmers. My own relief is beyond words. Looking in my shaving mirror today, I am startled at the change in me the last few weeks. The Lears are coming out to dinner tonight. More power to them. August 4th. The party last night was a great success. Lear had brought me out a bottle of claret, and with candles on the table and six wine glasses, hastily borrowed from Annie Cochran at the main house, who took on quite a festive air. Lear looked a trifle puzzled when, at Edith's suggestion, she, Halliday, and myself drank to the absent one. But otherwise all was well. We divided after the meal. Jane and Helena to talk. Edith and Halliday for the boathouse and a canoe, and Lear and I to pace the drive with our cigars. Lear's quiet face and general dependability, and perhaps the need of a fresh mind on the conditions here, impelled me to tell my story, to which he listened without interruption. His opinion is that we have to do with a homicidal maniac, and that the sheep killing was preliminary to the rest, a propitiation, as he puts it. Of course I am no psychiatrist, he said, but what other explanation have you? None at all, I admitted. Of course, if I meant to commit a series of crimes, I might find it useful to establish my insanity first. I doubt if any jury, once convinced that the murderer and the sheep-killer are the same, would doubt his essential lunacy. On the other hand, Lear said in his cold academic voice, the man who sets out to commit such a series of crimes as this is unbalanced. He doesn't have to kill sheep to make a plea of that sort. He may present an entirely rational face to the world, but something has slipped. You can depend on it. The supernatural angle of the case he put aside with a gesture... I won't even argue it, he said. There may be something to it, I'm not denying that, but it's not stuff to be meddled with. When the Lord means to open that veil, he will do it, and I am no peeping Tom. He said further that Helena has taken up the Ouija board, and sits for hours, quote, with anyone she can entrap, unquote, getting absurd messages which sound well and mean nothing. In your place, he said, I would forget it. If you get really to the point where you think you have something, send for Cameron and let him look into it. But keep out of it yourself, Porter. It's bad medicine. I took them to the eleven o'clock train and have only just returned. But I think it would amuse Lear, in spite of his hands-off attitude, to know that as I drove into the garage and shut off the lights and the engine, in the very act of getting out of the car, I heard once more the peculiar dry cough, the faint slow footfall, and smelled again that curious herbal odor which I shall, all the days of my life, associate with my Uncle Horace. So unexpected was it, coming on top of the happiest evening of the summer, that I stood for a moment immovable. Then I leaped from the terrifying darkness of the garage out into the moonlight, 
There confronted young Gordon, sitting outside and quietly smoking. Hello, I said when I could speak. Out again, I see? Yes, that place gets my goat, he replied. I guess I am jumpy since the other night. He looked badly, and I asked him if he cared to sit down before starting back, but he refused. I'll get hell if he finds I've left the house, he said elegantly. I turned and walked back with him toward the house, and seeing him secretly amused about something, asked him what it was, whereupon he said that he was thinking of the way I had shot out of the garage. But something over on you there, didn't I? You startled me, what do you mean? I guess you know, he said with a sidelong glance. That cough. You mean the lighthouse story? He fell again into one of his secret convulsions of mirth. No, I don't mean the lighthouse, he said, and turning abruptly struck off through the trees. I can take from this as much or as little as I will. Is it possible that Gordon has heard the cough in the house and associates it with the other sounds of which he has complained to Annie Cochran? Or has he merely been told of it, and with his perverted idea of humor been deliberately alarming me with it? If I am to believe my recent reading, according to tradition the discarnate frequently do, after death, the things they did most frequently in life. Your hunter returns on horseback and is seen alone on country roads. Ladies of ancient times who lighted themselves to bed with candles seem to go on perennially retiring to God knows what unearthly couch, with the same everlasting candle in their hands. But to record, in all seriousness, the possibility that they carry with them, without the flesh, the weaknesses of that flesh, is beyond my power of credulity. August 5th. I returned the wine glasses to Annie Cochran this morning, and as a result have been attempting ever since to reconcile what she says with the facts as we know them. Annie Cochran declares that young Gordon has been in the habit of slipping out of the house at night, that he commenced to do it shortly after his arrival, and has done it ever since, that, indeed, he was not sitting on the kitchen steps before he was attacked, but had been out in the car, and was trying to get back into the house. She also believes that Mr. Bethel suspects it, and has been on the alert, especially since the night of the attack. "'There's been bad blood between them ever since that night,' she said. "'They talk a bit when I'm in the dining room, but once I'm out of it, they're as glum as oysters.' She also suspects Mr. Bethel of being afraid of Gordon. On the nights when she assisted him upstairs, while the secretary was still invalided, she always heard him bolt his door as soon as he was inside. And the nights he stayed down, she added, he had me bring down that revolver of his. He laid it to the fellow who got in by the gunroom window, but I've got my own ideas about it. Her reasons for not telling the detective are peculiarly feminine. He had antagonized her early by some high-handed method of his own, and he was getting paid for finding things out. I wasn't. But her other reason is curious, and shows a depth of loyalty to me which is unexpected, and rather touching. I didn't see the use of dragging this place in, she says. It's got a bad enough name already. And there's a lot of talk going on, some of it makes me sick. From the way she avoided my eyes and rattled at her stove, I am left to conjecture that my woodcutter, who by the way is missing today, has not passed unnoticed, and that possibly either Star or Nile has been talking. Probably Nile. In any event, Annie Cochran, and very likely the entire vicinity, has evidently known that I have been under surveillance. A miserable thought, only relieved by Annie's loyalty. What makes you think he'd been off the place the night he was hurt? He said he couldn't sleep, didn't he? And he got up and went downstairs to get something to eat, and then went outside? So he said. Well, as far as I can make out, he was dressed from top to toe. He didn't need to do that to get down to the pantry. And we had missed that. Hayward, Greenough, and I had checked up that story, according to our several abilities, and had never noticed that discrepancy. I set his clothes to be cleaned the next day, she said, and I noticed it then. But her real contribution, if I may call it that, lay in the garage, and after tiptoeing to the hall and listening to the sound of Mr. Bethel's dictation from within, she drew me outside. Note. The small garage for the main house sits behind the kitchen, and not far from the kitchen door. There are two methods of access to it. 
one by the drive past the lodge, which curves around the house, and the other by what we knew as the lane, a dirt road leading through the woodland, which extends toward Robinson's Point, and which strikes the Macadam Highway further along. So far as I know, she said, that car's only been out twice since they came, and that was to take Thomas home one time and be another the night of the storm, but it's been out just the same. Wouldn't the old man hear it? He mightn't, he mightn't. Suppose it was rolled along the lane and started. He wouldn't hear it there, would he? To support her contention, she showed me a number of marks in the lane, certainly suspicious but by no means evidential. It is nothing unusual for motorists to strike into the woodland along the lane, under the impression that it is a public road, and to be brought up while standing at the house. But against all this, at least as pointing to young Gordon as our possible criminal, is what is to me an insuperable obstacle. We know that the crimes are connected with the killing of the sheep. It is not possible to doubt this. And the sheep were killed and the altar built before Mr. Bethel brought Gordon into the neighborhood. Annie Cochran has a certain support for her contention, but not enough. And she dislikes the boy extremely. Probably she unwittingly revealed the reason for her attack on him just before I left. There's something wrong about him, she said. When a man's dishonest, he thinks everybody else is. Surely he doesn't say that about you. Well, he's taken to locking his room and carrying the key about with him. I never took a thing of anybody else's in my life. As Halliday went to town early today, taking the scrap of paper with the cipher to an expert he knows there, I have not been able to discuss this new angle with him. Quite aside from the discrepancy in dates, however, Gordon not arriving until after the reign of terror was well underway, the chief stumbling block is the attack on the boy himself. Suppose the boy does slip out at night and take the car. He is young, and I imagine pretty much a prisoner all day. He takes dictation all morning, types after luncheon while Mr. Bethel sleeps, and at four o'clock again is ready with his notebook and pencil. The few moments he has spent with Edith now and then are plainly stolen. End of section 10